0: Glad to be here with you this morning. Trip to Haiti was good. We'll hear about it next week. Very, very good trip. But as David introduced, uh, I'll be preaching about the life of uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, this morning. And it is a formidable task. I feel like I've been given a little U-Haul trailer up to a 10-bedroom mansion. And I'm supposed to move the stuff. There is a lot here. And I hope to get through it uh, clearly and quickly to give you kind of a, a full picture of his life. But... I don't want to undertake this without seeking God's face right now. Would you join with me for grace, Father, both for me, but also uh, uh, that you might be uh, overjoyed in in God and all that he did through this servant. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you uh, that we have um, an ability to look back at your grace in the lives of the saints, that we can see your power and your mercy, your sustaining um, your sustaining grace that you give to people, even in great affliction. And, and, Father, this is a reflection of your character and your love for your people. And so, Father, may, the, may this life, which, uh, which was yours to give and yours to empower and yours to remove, may it encourage us, not that we have to look like him, uh, but that we might find in you the same grace, the same power the same mercy that you would pour into us that while it may look differently, it would still be glorifying to you and enjoyable to us. So uh, gird up our minds, Father, through the power of your spirit uh, that uh, this church might be built up, that they might progress in their faith, and that they would increase in their joy over Jesus Christ. Uh, And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it's been uh, over six years that I've been doing this, uh, one one sermon on a saint every year. Um, I do it for a number of reasons. First, I think it is scriptural to do this. In uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, uh, Paul speaks about that the examples of old are intended to be a means of grace for us, that we're to see them and see God's grace in their life and say, that's the greatness of God, and I can put my faith in God, and find his grace to be sufficient in my life. But second, see that God's grace in the lives of broken saints. Charles Spurgeon was not a perfect man at all, Uh, but he was a greatly used man uh, by God. And we can see God's grace in his life and then say, God, we want that grace to be used in some measure. And then third, I want you to see that learning history is very instructive. To live in the lives of the saints that have gone before is very helpful for us. It gives us a, a much grander landscape of seeing God move in the history of men. And, and it, it, it pulls us away from this kind of myopic view that we can have in our lives. And it makes us look at God across, across ages and across places. It's very, very exciting. I think it breathes life into our faith. You know, this year, of course, we're going to look at Charles Spurgeon. Most of you have heard me quote him before. Um, he was a massive influence in his generation, still is, like Hebrews 11.4 says, and, and through his faith, though he dies, he still speaks. Spurgeon was unique um, in his gifts. I, I, as I studied it, I fought slight idolatry over, over the greatness of this man, reminding myself that you know, he's just a man, flesh and blood, here today, gone tomorrow, uh, but truly amazing in his gifts, set him apart from all other ministers, not just in his lifetime, but, but really even compared to today, and I hope to get into that. And, and when we speak about a person of such unique stature, you tend to be awed or overwhelmed or discouraged over this. How can I ever be like that? And boom, you just dial down and you turn off. And I, I really implore you not to do that. Um, what I want you to do is see how unfathomably gifted this man was, but it's a reflection of God. That all these things are gifts of God for us, and we're to enjoy them and love them and just see God in them and see his power. So like Thomas Aquinas, a um, great theologian once said, he said that if he looks at this beauty and he says, if this is so beautiful, how much more beautiful must be the one who made them? So I, I want you to see Spurgeon, but then I want you to see God out of that. Um, I've read a bunch of books. Um, one, and we have a sign-up sheet. If you're interested to read one of these biographies, uh, I think the easiest, most access, uh, accessible one is by Dallimore. Uh It's a, a new biography. It's a short one. Spurgeon has his own autobiography uh, that was written much by him and finished by his wife after he died. It's two volumes. It's massive. Ian Murray has another one, too. that's very good, but this is very accessible. Your kids could read it. Uh, There's the Forgotten Spurgeon, speaks about some of his major controversies that he got in. I'll touch on that. There's his all-around ministry, which is the lectures that he gave to pastors every year for about 27 years. He would gather in his pastor's college and give them a lecture each year. And then Lectures to My Students is a very good book, particularly for those in ministry. And what it is is uh, every Friday he would speak to the pastor's and it's a collection of many of the different lectures that he would teach his students on the nature of ministry. And uh, we have a sign-up sheet. I think I have on there that you can order uh, the, the biography or the lectures to my student. But if you want something else, then just call Julie and let her know. She'd be happy to order it for you. So I want to give a quick overview of his life, and then I want to get into trying to apply it to us a little bit. Okay, he was born on June 19, 1834 in Essex County, England. Well, he's called the greatest English preacher. He actually has roots in northern Europe. And uh, his, his forebears were persecuted by the Duke of Avila, a Catholic persecution. And they immigrated to England for freedom of worship. And uh, here's, here's his take on it. He says, I would rather be descended from one who suffered for the faith than bear the blood of all the emperors in my veins. So he's referencing his, his lineage, and yet he's glad to have suffered for Christ he was the firstborn in the home of a congregational minister. Within 14 months, uh, a, um, another child was born, and he was moved to his grandparents' house to care for him. And he, uh, in his grandfather's house, learned the scriptures well. It was a family steeped in the scriptures. He was a congregational minister, a respected man. He uh, was the object of love of his aunt, who taught him how to read and, and play. And, and um, early on, they noticed a the deep love that Spurgeon had for books. He would be found hours looking through the pictures of John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, looking at the pictures in that book. In fact, by the age of six, he was reading it on his own. By nine or ten years of age, he was reading John Owen, uh, Flavel, Sibbs, Matthew Henry, these great Puritans. Kids can read theological books, maybe not at nine or ten. I haven't learned to read Owen yet, but I'm really striving for it now. (laughs) And if you've read Owen, you'd know what I'm saying. It's unbelievably thick. But it was obviously a, a home steeped in the Puritan teaching. Moving back with his parents when he was about five years of age, um, he had a deeply loving mother. And this is an encouragement to parents here. Uh, this is, she became the object of his prayers for salvation. Now listen to what she prayed. He says, I remember her on one occasion praying. Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, that, that is huge, especially from hearing Luke teach us about Joel Osteen today. If my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment, if they lay not hold of Christ. So the parents saw the child as being in sin as a child, not just a cute little child. Spurgeon said, the thought of my mother bearing a swift witness against me pierced my conscience. How can I ever forget when she bowed her knee and with her arms about my neck prayed, oh, that my son may live before thee. Wow, you'd think that would demoralize the child. And yet it brought deep conviction to him. Well, he received an, ed- er- an education early on, but he was quickly seen as having unusual mental capacity. If there's only one time that he wasn't at the top of his class, it was when, and the teacher noticed that, that, uh, that Spurgeon began sliding in his grades, and it turned out that these slower students were given a place by the fireplace, and it was winter, and it was cold, and so when the teacher reordered it and had the, the harder-working students by the fireplace, his grades shot right back up. That was the only time he fell from his top spot. Uh, but his natural intelligence was unmatched, or it was not... Uh, it was parallel to his immoral courage, while a boy, he learned of the grief of his grandfather over one of his church members. So the grandfather's a pastor, one of the church members begins to attend the pub and starting to live in a very ungodly way. And so Spurgeon takes it upon himself to go into the pub to confront the man. And, and Thomas Rhodes was the man, and he records what happened. He said, well, he points his finger at me and says, what are you doing here? sitting with the ungodly, you a member of of a church, and breaking your pastor's heart? He goes, I'm ashamed of you. I wouldn't break my pastor's heart and walked away. Now, this is what Rhodes says. He says, I knew it was all true. I was guilty. I put down my pipe. I did not touch my beer, but hurriedly ran to a lonely spot and cast myself down before the Lord, confessing my sin and begging for forgiveness. I mean, the conviction of God's spirit is true. We don't have to move the church to the bar We can actually confront people with sin and trust that God will bring about a change. So he seemed, even from his youth, to be marked by God. In fact, Richard Nill, a missionary at the time, prophesied, not in the charismatic sense, but he spoke this over Spurgeon. He said, one day this boy will preach the gospel to thousands at Roland Hills Chapel, the largest dissenting church in London, which he would do years later. Okay, so he was not a Christian. He was deeply affected by piety. He knew the scriptures was taught them, but he was tormented by his sin. In fact, he says this. He says, the overwhelming splendor of his majesty, the greatness of his power and all the dreadful grandeur, these things overwhelmed my soul and I fell down in utter prostration of spirit. Now looking back on it later, he says, I had rather pass through seven years of the most languishing sickness that I would ever pass through This terrible discovery of the evil of sin. In other words, he was struggling with sin, but he had not yet believed the gospel. Now, he started going to churches to seek help. And he complains in his writings that he would go to one that was too academic. He would go to one that was too practical. And here's what he said. What I wanted to hear was how to get my sins forgiven, and they never told me that. God's providence was soon to bring the gospel to him through an unexpected means. I've shared multiple times with you the story of Spurgeon, uh, that there was a disease, an epidemic at school. He was sent home. Uh, he went and found a, a a church, an old primitive Methodist church. The pastor couldn't come because of the snow, and an old deacon just preached out of Isaiah forty five twenty two. And I'll let you read the book. The story is fascinating. It's long. It's profound, and I've shared it with many of you before. But God moved on him with grace, and he saw his need for Christ and the forgiveness of sins through faith. The effect was amazing, much like the picture that he studied in the Pilgrim's Progress. You know, In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, walks up to the cross, and he believes Jesus, and this burden that he had been carrying falls off of him, and he stands up free and forgiven, the joy that we're supposed to have when we come to faith in Christ. And here's what he says after his conversion. He says, Oh, how I loved my Savior Jesus. I would have given all I had for him. How I felt towards sinners that day. Glad that I was, I was, uh, wanted to preach and tell sinners round what a dear Savior I had found. So this is Spurgeon kind of looking back at the joy he had. Immediately he joins a church. Now, he joins a Baptist church to the chagrin of his parents. In fact, he said, I've become a Baptist by reading the New Testament, especially in the Greek and was strengthened in my resolve by a perusal of the Church of England Catechism, which declares, as necessary to baptism, repentance and forsaking of sin. In other words, the Church of England said you need to forsake your sin, and yet they're baptizing infants. So how does that work? That strengthened his resolve. But it was interesting. He asked his parents for permission to be baptized in a Baptist church. So his mother writes him and says, Ah, Charles, I often prayed the Lord to make you a Christian, but I never asked that you might become a Baptist. Laughter he responded, he says, ah, mother, the Lord has answered your prayer with his usual bounty and has given you exceedingly abundantly above what you've asked or thought. <laughs> he was a man of un- very, very quick wit. Okay, so after baptism, he moves to Cambridge for more education, quickly finds a church and is noticed for his speaking ability, and Mr. Venter, a leader in that church, wanted to encourage this young man to preach. But he felt that a direct request to ask Spurgeon to try preaching He would refuse. So he adopted a different approach. He asked Spurgeon to go to Tversham, a town nearby, the following Sunday, explaining that a young man was going to preach there who was not much used to services. And he would much like the company of another man. So Spurgeon agreed to go with this young man. So they set off for the church. So on the way, Spurgeon says that he had hoped this young man's preaching would be blessed of God. Well, the companion was startled and cried out, I've never done such a thing in my life. You're the one who is to preach. I am to keep you company. Well, his first sermon at the age of 15 uh, was well received. In fact, not long following, he preached in another church in Water Beach, another small town, and they were overwhelmed. It was a cottage. It was just a small little group of people. Well, he pastored there. They called him at 17, and he pastored for two years. Here's, here's what happened to the town. Okay, it started out with a handful of people, grew to 400. He says, "This is Spurgeon's take." He says, "Where there had been robberies and villainies of every kind all around the neighborhood, there were none because the men who used to do this were now rejoicing." I am not telling an exaggerated story, for it was my delight to labor for the Lord in that village. It was a pleasant thing to walk through that place where drunkenness had almost ceased when debauchery in the case of many was dead, and when men and women went forth to labor with joyful hearts, singing the praises of the ever-living God. I do testify to the praise of God's grace that it pleased the Lord to work wonders in our midst. He showed the power of Jesus' name and made me a witness of that gospel which can win souls, draw reluctant hearts, mold a fresh life, and conduct of sinful men. Now, while teaching at Cambridge, okay, so he's pastoring in Water Beach, he's still teaching in Cambridge, He's heard by the name of George Gould. This is a man who heard him and heard him debate with some older ministers who are chiding him for his youthfulness, forgetting, I guess, what is written in letters to Timothy. And so he tells this man only, a deacon at this New Park Street church in London. It is a famous church, a church of great renown, huge sanctuary, 1,200 people. It had pastors like John Gill and John Ripon and Keech, these men of great, great Uh, distinguished ministries. And so they they wrote to Spurgeon and said, we'd like you to come preach in our pulpit. So he wrote back when he heard it was New Park Street, and he said, well, you must have the wrong Spurgeon. And so they said, no, he was only 19 at the time. They said, no, we want you to come preach. So he preached in London. In fact, the night before he was to preach, he saw some young men in a boarding house where they put him up. And they were making fun of him because of his unkempt hair, his country-fied manner, and his little education. Well, after preaching, the church was stunned. They said people didn't move. They just stayed. That night when he preached, the service was doubled because the people went out and shared how amazing the man handled the scriptures at 19. They called him, he said, only on a provisional basis to make sure that they could reject him if they found he was too young or too uneducated. Well, within a few months, they solidified the call. He said, only if you pray for my ministry. That was the condition that he had. You must pray for my ministry. Within a month of preaching there, the sanctuary was filled. Within a few months, plans were being drawn to expand the church. This new church, which would be called the Metropolitan Tabernacle, was located at Elephant and Castle, uh, just south of the Thames in London, um, was going to hold 6,000 people. Listen, by the time that thing was built, he had preached at Exeter Hall, 4,000, the Royal Surrey Garden Music Hall, which held over 10,000, and he had preached at the Crystal Palace. And they had turnstiles counting the people coming, and there were 23,654 that attended this young 20-year-old, non-seminary trained, non-highly educated young man who had just been reading the scriptures. Well he was a sensation. And this time he got married to Susanna Thompson. Uh, it was a marriage that within three or it took place within three years of his coming to the church. It was a long, it was a mutually satisfying relationship, but it didn't start out that way. Here's her first impression. Thought this was kind of funny. I was not at all fascinated by this young order's eloquence, while his countryfied manner and speech excited more regret than reverence. Now, I was not spiritually minded enough to understand his earnest presentation of the gospel and his powerful pleading with sinners, but the huge black satin stock, the long, badly trimmed hair, the blue pocket handkerchief with white spots, these attracted most of my attention, Attention, and I fear it awakened some feelings of amusement. Well, she would be the bulwark of his ministry of support and encouragement. A friend wrote, A friend wrote, while at every turn in his public life, he was the target for many a rude attack, she next to God was his shield and helper. In fact, uh, Russell Conwell, uh, he is the founder of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and and actually the seminary that I went to, um, made this remark. They became good friends with the Spurgeons, and he said, had he married a silly wife who would have regarded him as the perfection of sainthood or a devotee of fashion Who would have discouraged him with her corrections, he could never have attained the eminence he reached. Had he allied himself with a wife who was less pious and sincere or who would have maintained her hold upon the affections and esteem of his congregation, she would have served to injure his reputation. But she worked with him, prayed with him, believed in him, affectionately loved him through many years of work. The thought of her, even when he was absent from home, was to him subtle rest of spirit. He could travel many days, preach several times a day, finding rest in the thought that at home she was hourly praying for him and was awaiting him with a welcome he could anticipate with a sense of divine peace. Now, this marriage was not borne out on a bed of comfort but on a sea of affliction. By the time she was 33, she was practically an invalid and hardly attended his services for the next 27 years. They had two children, and they could have no more. But she developed her own ministry in taking Spurgeon's writings and his books and his sermons and distributing them to ministers throughout England for free. She ended up, after 14 years, had distributed 6,916 volumes and 13,565 sermons all for free. Baptists do love numbers, and you're going to hear a few more. Sorry. It must be remembered that this church that he was pastoring in uh, was a working church. It was not a preaching center. It was open seven days a week, from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. In fact, he once called them a hive of bees in their busyness and their ministries. In fact, on his jubilee celebration, after 25 years of ministry, Lord Shaftesbury made the comment that 66 organizations, institutions, and ministries were all responsible to his leading an initiation. Let me just touch on a few of them. First, the, the pastor's college. Spurgeon saw immediately the need for training men in a way different from the way it was taking place in England at the time. In the first year he was there, actually, he met a man by the name of Thomas Medhurst. And uh, he had little culture, he had poor clothing, and yet he had a strong call for God. He would not be accepted in any, any seminary at the time. When some of the congregation objected to Spurgeon spending this time with him training Uh, He interviewed the man, and here's what the man's reply was. Spurgeon was trying to find out, was the call serious or not? And so Thomas Medhurst said, I must preach, sir, and I shall preach unless you cut off my head. And so at that point, Spurgeon felt that his call was acceptable and brought him into the first. He was the first student of the pastor's college. Ultimately, he would train over 900 ministers to preach the gospel. His intention was clear. It was not an educational institution but a place to train men for ministry. It was only two years long. Uh, the goal was not turning out scholars. In fact, he wrote, scholarship for its own sake was never sought. But to help men be efficient preachers has been and ever will be the sole aim of those concerned in its management. It now is still going on. There's a number of years it wasn't, but Dr. Peter Masters, now the pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle, has a seminary training built after this. All these years later, Spurgeon designed it to be within the church because he wanted these men to learn ministry in the church life, not as other institutions do training outside of church. It was free. Even clothes were given, pocket change, and Spurgeon bore it all himself to start this ministry up from the money that he was making from the selling of his sermons. They would be sold for a penny apiece. They are are worth far more than that. Um, But there was no graduations, no diplomas, uh, there was no examinations. But after 10 years, hundreds of men were trained, 20 churches planted. In fact, in less than 20 years, they recorded from the men that had been trained in this pastor's college... 39,000 people had been baptized through these ministers. Now, baptism for Spurgeon was a significant event, and there was a serious hill to climb before one would be baptized in terms of identifying true fruit, making sure conversion had truly taken place. He wasn't just worried about pastors, though. He opened up education in the church at night with over 200 people attending, free for those who were too poor. But in another ministry, he built houses for widows, 17 of them, actually, and he would support them with food and clothing. In fact, on his 25th anniversary, he was given a gift of over 6,500 pounds, which was immense at the time, and uh, he gave it all back to the charities, and half of it went to support these widows. They also attached to that structure free schooling. There was no public education in Britain at the time. 400 students, blacks, whites, Jews, Catholics, he educated them all, these, orph- these kids that had no education. Along that time, he started an orphanage. Um, in fact, this orphanage was unique. He didn't build a barrack-style orphanages like they were, but individual homes with a matron in each home to make it more like a home. It wasn't long before they had an infirmary with a gymnasium. They had playing fields. He even built a pool for them. It's a massive complex when you see pictures of it. And then he added a girl's home within 10 years. He, he started this organization called the That's Porters. That's a, it's a French word for peddlers or sellers of books. And so what he did was he took men and he said, I'll pay you 40 pounds a year. You sell books and sermons to raise another 40 pounds a year. And let's get the gospel into the slums of London where the churches were not and into the rural areas where they couldn't afford to support a pastor. And in 1878, they had 94 coal porters who made 926,290 visits, getting the gospel into place. This man had an absolute heart for evangelism. Much more could be said about the sword and the trowel as monthly magazine, but I want you to see the immensity of his workload. In fact, one time he confessed this: He said, "No one living knows the toil and care I have to bear. I have to look after the orphanage, charge over a church with 4,000 members." Sometimes there are marriages, burials, there is a weekly sermon to be revised, the sword and the trowel to be edited. Besides all that, weekly average of 500 letters to be answered, the quill in the ink, and back on the paper. He said, by the end of the day, his hand would be swollen, he was writing so much. This, however, is only half my duty, for there are innumerable churches established by friends with the affairs of which I am closely connected, say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly referred to me. Now, he worked 18 hours a day, and uh, Lord Shaftesbury, at that jubilee celebration of 25 years, said that the list of associations instituted by his genius and superintended by his care was more than enough to occupy the minds and hearts of 50 ordinary men. Now, I don't want you thinking it was just a poor alligator. I think he saw this as a theological call From God to do this. He says people have said to me years ago, you will break your constitution down with preaching 10 times per week. That's what he did and the like. Well, if I've done so, I'm glad of it. I would do it all the same again. If I had 50 constitutions, I would rejoice to break them down again in the service of Jesus Christ. Overcome the evil one and fight for the Lord while you can. You will never regret having done all that lies in you for our blessed Master and Savior. So he did this with the intention of, I am being gifted by God, and I want to do all that I can for his glory. Well, a remarkable facet of Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's ministry is that it never declined. It, 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 never, it never decreased as perhaps his health decreased. In fact, you're going to find as I go through some of the application that as the suffering increased, the ministry actually increased. Uh, he was calling for members at the end of his ministry there to skip Sunday evening service every three months to allow the unconverted to come. Uh, at, even at the end, there were a 1,000 people in his church who would be ministering on Sunday night through the church to different places. It, was, it really broke the 80-20 rule. But on June 7, 1891, uh, Spurgeon preaches his last sermon. Uh, He suffers much pain and sickness through June and July. And then he goes to France, southern France by Nice. Uh, He would go there over the past 20 years just recuperating because of the dampness and the cold of London. Um, And he would die on January 31, uh, 1892, the age of 59. His body was taken back to England. 50,000 people paid their respects at his casket. Uh, There were so many that wanted to come to the funeral that they had to have five Funeral services. Uh, this is what his wife recorded. I couldn't get through it yesterday. Got through it this morning. I'll try again right now. He's, she's, she wrote this: "I've traveled for now on life's journey, and having climbed one of the few remaining hills between earth and heaven, I stand a while on this vantage ground and look back across the country through which the Lord has led me. I can see two pilgrims treading the highway of life together, hand in heart." hand in hand, heart linked to heart. True, they had rivers to ford, mountains to cross, fierce enemies to fight, many dangers to go through. But their guide was watchful, their deliverer unfailing. And of them, it might be truly said, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Mostly they they went on their way singing, and for one of them at least there was no greater joy than to tell others of the grace and the glory of this blessed king to whose land he was hastening. And while he thus spoke, the power of the Lord was seen, and the angels rejoiced over repenting sinners. But soon they came to a place in the road where the two ways met. And here amidst the terrors of a storm, such as they had never before encountered, they parted company. The one being caught up to the invisible glory, and the other battered, bruised by the awful tempest, henceforth toiling along along the road alone. But the goodness and the mercy which for so many years had followed these two travelers, did not leave the solitary one. Rather, did the tenderness of the Lord lead on softly and choose green pastures for the tired feet and still waters for the solace and refreshment of this trembling child. He gave moreover into her hands a solemn charge to help fellow pilgrims along the road therewith, filling her life with blessed interest and healing her own deep sorrow by giving her power to relive and comfort others. So as as I read this life of Spurgeon, I was just overwhelmed at just the production alone. I mean, the mind, and I thought, how can we even identify? Maybe I should have gone down the ladder a little bit to get somebody that we might be able to say. But some of that's pride in us. You know, we want to be able to kind of, we want to kind of get near him so we can be like him, and But then I started thinking about how God was demonstrated in his life. And I want to kind of pull that apart with you a little bit and just apply it. I want you to learn, and I want to learn from his life, how to be used in such great measure. It won't look the same, and that's absolutely fine. But how can we be used greatly like Spurgeon does? And there's there's some principles i found in his life. Number one, that those greatly used of God for his kingdom have to be committed. Uh, a life like this doesn't happen by chance. It, it doesn't happen without perseverance and determination. We don't win medals. We don't win medals, and we don't win awards by slothfulness and laziness and inconsistency. In fact, he often um, he confessed that he thought when he was converted, the devil would no longer deal with him. But he found quickly that the Christian life, as he said, was not a bed of flowery ease. But it was a field of battle. It demands commitment, allegiance. Listen to his commitment after his conversion. He says, O great and unsearchable God, who knows my heart and tries all my ways, with humble dependence upon Thy support of your spirit, I yield myself up to thee as your own reasonable sacrifice. I return it to you. I would be forever, unreservedly, perpetually yours while I'm on earth. I will serve you And I may enjoy, so that I may enjoy you and praise you forever. This is absolute commitment. Folks, check our commitment. We, as the people of God, we don't have the giftings that this man may have had, but the call to be committed, to be unreservedly, perpetually his while on earth. He lived that out. He lived that out well. Are you committed? Have you committed? Is there fruit in your life bearing commitment? is this a time that you can stop and consider i have not been committed recommitting your life to god but the second principle besides commitment is that those greatly used of god are often attended to with great trials you know his gifts are amazing let me just give you a few facts about his life that i haven't given yet uh, he preached to over 10 million people his sermons sold between 2 and 300 million In 1865, Spurgeon's sermons were selling 25,000 copies every week. That's bigger than any websites getting hit. 25,000 a week. They were waiting for these things to come off the press. His sermons, collected, fill 63 volumes, between 20 and 25 million words, the largest set of books by any single author in Christian history, he would preach 10 times a week. The church that he served took in over 14,400 members in his time there. It was the largest Baptist church in the entire world. He took one page of notes that he wrote on Saturday night into the pulpit and preached 140 words permitted for 40 minutes. It was all taken down shorthand. He would revise it on Monday, and it would be out by Thursday. His mind was extraordinary. He would have eight thoughts in his mind at the same time. I know. How many do I have? Well, (laughs) it's my secret. (laughs) I once had three, but I tripped. (laughs) And I I hurt myself. He would read six books a week. He remembered everything he read. He had a photographic memory. He was able to quote books without reference. There were no table of contents, there were no indices, there were no computer search engines, and he could reference them. His voice was considered almost angelic in terms of its control, ability to vacillate and be heard, he even before audiences of 20,000 people. It was said that his voice was like the chime of a silver bell. He was, now, I will say this, he was mid-height, and he, as they said, had no angles, which I assume is like his body was more like a door. And that he grew a beard in his mid-30s, and they said it, it actually helped his appearance. So <laughs> I think God gave him a lot of other gifts, maybe. <laughs> he wasn't a showstopper. But but it, now you, know, you hold up those gifts. So he's 19, preaching before thousands, a sensation in his early 20s, people coming to faith, hundreds of them a month. And it was tethered to suffering. As I mentioned, his wife was an invalid, or semi-invalid at least, rarely able to come listen to him preach, attend church. But, but he faced conflict in the secular press. They made cartoons out of him. They joked about his youth, his lack of education. Uh, all, you, know, you can When you read his biography, you'll just see what the press writes about him. It was unbelievable. And his wife would collect everyone and put them in a notebook. And he counted on those who persecute you. He would always go back to the, the beatitude. Blessed are you when men revile you. And she kept them in a huge book. But he also faced opposition from within the evangelical community. He, went, he had a number of controversies. One is this baptismal regeneration. There are many evangelicals in the Church of England at the time, and they practiced baptism of infants, and the Book of Common Prayer advanced this baptismal regeneration original sin being removed, and he was saying, how can you practice this if you believe this? Well, he ended up losing a lot of friends. It was a good theological challenge to a people that were living in contradiction. And he lost all kinds of friends. He took all kinds of heat in the press. But the biggest controversy he got into was called the downgrade controversy. And that is when the higher criticism of Germany, that is this theology of beginning to question the sources of the Bible, that we don't really know that Paul wrote these letters. They were probably redacted, or they were probably written by you know, others way after Paul. And this idea began to infiltrate the church in England, and it began to undermine the authority of scriptures in people's minds. And so this Baptist union that he was a part of in London was beginning to adopt some of these principles, and so he went right after it. Lover of God's word. Well, There was no untold amount of criticism that he received by pulling out. They called him a a divider, a schism maker. He he actually, one man. um, Well, read the book. It's amazing what he went through. But here's what he wrote at one point. He said, "Down on my knees, I have fallen, with the hot sweat rising from my brow under some fresh slander poured out on me. In agony of grief, my heart has been well nigh broken." These were friends. It even began to divide the pastors' college. But not just that, he suffered from depression. While well, there were signs early in life it increased with age, he suffered with physical pain from gout and Bright's disease and inflammation in the kidneys. This dogged him from 35 all the way until he was dead. In fact, in the last 22 years of ministry, he was out of the pulpit a full one-third of the time being bedridden. One biographer said the school of suffering was one in which he was deeply taught. But Spurgeon understood that suffering was needed in his life to bring him to greater usefulness. In fact, he said that it helped keep him dependent with the gifts. reminds me of Paul when Paul said in Second Corinthians 12, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of great, um, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. In fact, Spurgeon said, Well pain in itself sanctifies no man, it may tend to wrap him up within himself and make him morose, peevish, and selfish. Is that not true? We can become absolutely self idolaters in our pain. But when God blesses it, then it will have more of a salutary effect of stifling, softening, influence in our lives. He saw the benefit of the suffering that he endured. In fact, his ministry grew uh, when his pain increased. It it was not that he didn't ask why. It's not that he didn't struggle with it. In one sermon, he pleaded before God. In the midst of the sermon, he says, Thou art my father, and I am thy child. And thou as a father art tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as thou makes me to suffer. And if I saw him as I am tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him. Will you hide your face from me? My father, will you still lay a heavy hand and not give me a smile from your countenance? So there was struggle that he had with this. But, he, but his struggle with it didn't cause him to question the place of God in it. In fact, he said this. He said, fate is blind, but providence has eyes. He said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God did not send, that I had a bitter cup that was not filled by his hand, or that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quality. So he saw these things coming from God. People of God, high-impact lives are often met with great adversity. We are not to look for this kind of suffering. But as suffering enters our life, We are not to question the sovereignty of God in the suffering, but we are to see, God, how are you using this to perfect and and to prepare me to see Christ? God is sovereign over the flight of the bird. He's sovereign over the breath that we draw. We live and move and have our being in God, and that includes the suffering that comes into the life of the saint. So I bid you to not question the sovereignty of God. We can ask God why. We can ask God for grace. It is difficult. Many of you have suffered deeply in this place. But I would, as I compare my life and the suffering I've been through, his life is just littered with suffering. And yet he had such a high view of God. I bid you to follow that example. Uh, Thirdly, those greatly used of God. So those greatly used of God were committed, were embracing of sacrifice and suffering. But thirdly, were also to persevere in prayer. He was a great man of prayer. In fact, this, is a, this would be a classic example of it. So the church is growing large. He stands in front of them and he says, Dear friends, we're a huge church. We should be doing more for the Lord in this great city. I want us tonight to ask him to send us some new work. And if we need money to carry it on, let us pray that the means also will be sent. That's all he did. They prayed together that night. Within two days, he gets a letter from this widow of an Anglican clergyman who was offering him 20,000 pounds to start an education and home for orphans. Now, she had never met Spurgeon, but she had asked her friend, another Anglican minister, who is no friend of Spurgeon, what she should do with the money. And he said, send it to Charles Spurgeon. He is a totally reliable public figure into whose hands you could place the money. Folks, that is the value of integrity. You live with integrity, and your enemies see." that you're trustworthy. Well, after a few weeks, he visits her. She's in a modest tone. So he says, Madam, we've come to call on you for the 200 pounds you've offered. She goes, 200? I said 20,000. He said, oh, yes, you did put 20,000, but I was not sure whether a naught or two may have slipped in by mistake and thought I would be on the safe side. (laughs) He tried to not accept the gift. He encouraged her to consider her family needs being assured they were cared for. He even suggested um, to give it to George Mueller, who ran a very good orphanage in Bristol. And when she said no, he then accepted it and rejoiced that God is mighty in prayer. People of God, can we pray that prayer? Can we say we are a decent-sized church? Can we not do some work in Raleigh that we're not currently doing? Can we not pray for the working? Can we not pray for the, the means to do it? Or praying for those that are currently laboring among the current or the other ministries that we have. I mean, it's so simple. Spurgeon was known for just his simplicity, just the simple faith that was yet profound. Okay, fourth, those greatly used of God for his kingdom have a deep love for the gospel of Jesus. Now, I want to combine this with a deep love for the lost souls that are around us. I want to combine the two. Okay, Spurgeon had love for Christ. That was clear. In fact, Mrs. Spurgeon records, he he was preaching on a text, his name shall endure forever. That is Christ. And here's what she wrote. It was the subject in which he reveled. It was his chief delight to exalt his glorious Savior. He seemed in that discourse to be pouring out his very soul in life and homage and adoration before his gracious King. He said over and over, let my name perish, but let Christ's name last forever. Jesus, crown him Lord of all. In fact, he'd tell his students, above all, feed the flame with intimate fellowship of Christ. No man was ever cold in heart who lived with Christ. So he's saying people of God, there is, a, there is a command, there is a privilege that we are to meditate, think on, consider, just dwell upon this idea of Christ and him crucified for us, now reigning at the right hand of God, far above rule, authority, power, and dominion for the church. That's for us. But then he had a deep earnestness for souls. In, in fact, he was in a, an unabashed Calvinist. He loved Calvinism. He said Calvinism is the gospel. He didn't say the gospel's Calvinism, gospel's greater than that. But Calvinism is the gospel. And yet he was a man longing for souls, lost people, non Christians to come find Christ worthy. He never gave an altar call. He never asked a man to raise his hand. He never had anyone sign a card. What he would do at the end of his sermon is he would say, Believe on Christ. Cast your eyes on Christ. And then Tuesday afternoon, he'd be in his office to handle inquires. And they said his office was never empty. People would come seeking to know about this Christ. And God rewarded this faith with thousands of souls. Even today, people report being converted by reading his sermons. His heart, though, for the lost, I think, is seen in this sermon that he gave a little bit before his death or quite a bit. He says, In a little while, there will be a concourse of persons in the streets. Methinks I hear someone inquiring, what are all these people waiting for? Do you know? Well, he is to be buried today. And who is that? Well, it is Spurgeon. What? The man that preached at the tabernacle. Yes, he is to be buried today. This is him in a sermon. And then Spurgeon turns to the church. He says, This will happen very soon. And when you see my coffin carried to the silent grave, I should like every one of you, whether converted or not, to be constrained to say he did earnestly urge us in plain and simple language not to put off the consideration of eternal things. He did entreat us to look to Christ. Now he is gone. Our blood is not at his door if we perish. This has been a great challenge to me personally. The, the idea, even as, as Luke was getting out with Joel Osteen, you know, in modern evangelicalism, we have diluted the gospel to remove sin. Jesus is good for you. It's a therapeutic evangelism. It's to help you live your life. That many pastors are now just simply um, a watered-down Christian counselor helping you just get along in life better and be happy. And, and Spurgeon was moved. And I think, I think the defining mark of his ministry is he was so overwhelmed with the nature of sin that when Christ delivered him of sin, he had nothing but love for the Savior. But if you don't know sin, if you haven't been, many of us perhaps have come through this therapeutic evangelism. If you don't know the sin from which you've been drawn, then there's going to be a corresponding decrease in the love that you have for the one that's drawn you from the sin. I think about Luke 7 and the woman uh, the woman, that, that prostitute, the filthy woman that came up behind Jesus while he's eating with Simon the Pharisee, and, 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 he is, and just, she's pouring out tears upon his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. She's so overwhelmed with the forgiveness that she's received because she saw the train wreck of her life and what she's been delivered from. That she went away rejoicing. Many people today come to Christ, and they're just glad they got that covered and that taken care of. I won't have to go to hell now. And so I would just ask you to consider that in your own soul right now. Do you understand the profound nature of sin in your life that you have been delivered from? Do you see that? And does it not well up within you a profound love for Christ and all that he has done for us to leave the realms of glory, to take upon flesh, to live this perfect life that we could never live, to bear upon himself our sin? to suffer, die, be raised, that by faith in Christ we are delivered from our sin forever and we'll live with him and enjoy him. Perfect communion with God because of the work of Christ on our behalf. My prayer is that you would simply be a little more overwhelmed with the grace of God through the life of this man. Let me pray for us and then I'll call the elders and the service forward for communion. Father, um, may we not be wowed and over. Uh, infatuated with his life, but with the God of whom he was so overwhelmed and wild with. Father, would you give us uh, a renewed vision? You'd stir up, you'd awaken interest in our soul over Christ and all that he has done for us. Spurgeon never lost in love for Christ. May we increase, would you inflame our hearts with a true recognition of the depravity over which you have delivered us? May we find Christ to be worthy of our entire lives? Would you draw us to a deeper commitment? Would you give us grace to walk in sacrifice and suffering in greater measure? Would you give us a greater concern for the lost around us? Father, what does it mean that they will never see your face and enjoy a perfect communion with you? Help us in this measure, Father, so that you would be glorified in our lives and that we would be overjoyed when we see you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.